Well, good morning. Glad to be back from Singapore. I, I bring greetings from there, the church there that uh, has uh, been in close partnership with us for several years now. And um, uh, Joseph and Len Tan Chi were there, as were David and Bethany Jackson, and they all sent their greetings to you as well. Uh, I just want to say before we get started that uh, this Christmas Eve, we'll have our traditional Christmas Eve service that'll be on Saturday night. And uh, the kids are actually going to start us off with a song that will become the theme for the evening, Go Tell It on the Mountains, Over the Hills and Everywhere. And uh, I don't know how often you watch a football game, but the announcers on a football game, one of them does the play-by-play. This guy's got the ball and he's running here and well, this is the outcome, and there's another guy that does the color there and helps us to understand what the play means and how it might have gone differently. And, well, that's what we'll be doing on, on, New, on Christmas Eve. There will be folks uh, that will come up here, folks from our church, who will come up and do the play-by-play. They'll tell us the story. Everything that will come out of their mouths is directly from God's Word, uh, the story as it unfolds. And uh, I'll get up in between and... Try to make connections between the events and between the events and the songs that we'll be singing as we take the time to respond to God for what he did in that particular moment as we celebrate Almighty God wrapped in swaddling clothes. So make sure to be there. Next Sunday morning, of course, is Christmas Day, and we will be having church. Uh, We're not going to be taking down names of the people that don't show up, but we'd love to have you here. Uh, we will take down the names of the people who show up because uh, we'll, you know, we'll send on ahead for extra reward. For, no, we won't do that. Um, but uh, it, it's just going to be a family time, nothing big or complicated, nothing fancy. Just a family time to help celebrate your morning and uh, you take a little break from all the festivities. Come and have festivities here together with your church family and, uh, and then you can make your way back home and, uh, oh, and you can bring my present when you come. Um, it's Christmas, as we've been saying, and we're getting closer and closer. You might expect that, that I'm going to tell you some part of the Christmas story this morning, but I've decided, or rather I should say I believe that the Spirit of God has prompted me, has led me to change things up this year. And no, I'm not going to talk about Santa and his reindeer, but instead of telling you a story about the beginning of Jesus' life, I want to, I want to tell you something, start with something that happened during the time of Jesus' life in ministry. And in case you're taking notes or will search for this message on YouTube, the title for this message this morning is The True Gift. And at the risk of of a spoiler alert, I'll tell you that everything that I have to say this morning will eventually hang on one word. But it will be one word from what is most likely the most familiar and memorable chapters in God's Word and the most familiar and memorable verse in God's Word as well. So let's dial into that particular moment from Jesus' life and let's ask God to speak powerfully to us in these few minutes as we continue to celebrate his birth. The particular moment that I'm talking about was recounted and recorded for us by John, the Apostle John, in the gospel that bears his name. And it's a pivotal part of the message that John has for us. So I want to tell you a story that comes from John, but before I do that, I want to read a couple of verses to you that also come from the Gospel of John. And as someone who teaches God's Word on a regular basis, these verses are absolutely essential to a guy like me. They're incredibly helpful. I say that these verses are extremely helpful to a guy like me because when I teach God's Word, I want to make sure that I teach it 
accurately, that I'm accurately explaining what God has to say. And the reason I want to accurately explain it is because I don't believe for a minute that you come here on a Sunday morning to hear my opinions. I'm convinced that you don't want to hear my opinions. I'm instead convinced that you want and need to hear God's opinions about this old world and his solutions for us. So even though it's Christmas, I have to say that this isn't just about you. Forgive me for that. I can tell you truthfully that not only do I want, do I want you to hear what God wants you to hear, but I also want to say what God wants me to say. Those things are deep in my heart. So this opportunity that I have this morning is a Christmas gift from God himself for both you and me, and I'll trust, I trust you'll sense that as we go. And in light of you hearing what God wants you to hear and me saying what God wants me to say, there are two verses in the next to the last chapter of John's gospel that provide us with some very helpful guidance in that pursuit. Enough talking about the verses. Let's take a few seconds to read them. And keeping with our standing tradition here at Potter's House, do you get it? Standing tradition? Come on, it's Christmas. You've got to give me that. In keeping with our standing tradition here at Potter's House, let's stand and read them aloud together. John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thank you. You can be seated, thankful for God's word. And in the meantime, let me read that to you again. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Did you catch it? John is actually telling us why he wrote his gospel. He's telling us that he had a goal in mind when he took up his quill pen and began to write. John says that there were many, many signs, which is just another word for miracles, so we'll go with that. John says that there are many miracles that Jesus performed. And John freely admits that not all of Jesus' miracles are recorded in the Gospel of John, the Gospel that he wrote, because John didn't write them all down. He picked and he chose. John goes on to say that he didn't write about all of the miracles that Jesus performed, or all the conversations that Jesus had, or all the other things that Jesus did. In other words, John chose specific miracles that Jesus performed. He chose specific conversations that Jesus had with other people, and he chose specific things that Jesus did. And John tells us that he chose those specific things with a specific goal in mind. And what was that goal? John chose specific things to write about because he wanted you to, in his words, Believe that Jesus is the, the Messiah and the Son of God so that by believing you may have life in his name. John is admitting to some carefully crafted benevolent manipulation here. He's saying that there are some things that you need to know. And John is anticipating that when you know those things, you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. And John makes it clear that it is his goal that by believing, you'll have life through Jesus' name. He's that blatant. I hope that you heard that. John wants you to know what Jesus did so that you can understand who Jesus really was, so that you can believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, so that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
So keeping those goals in mind, I want to tell you a story from the Gospel of John this morning about something that happened one night to Jesus. In fact, I want to tell you about a conversation that Jesus had. The story that I want to tell you deals with a man named Nick. Not Saint Nick, but Nick. A man who shows up three times in the Gospel of John, and each time, he appear, each time he appears, we can clearly see a shift in what Nick believes about Jesus. Now, Nick was a, a very religious man right from the start, but just like John described when he shared his goal with us, Nick will be on a journey throughout John's Gospel. And this story I want to tell you today is about something that happened when Nick had heard about Jesus, but had not actually yet met Jesus. In other words, Nick is aware of Jesus, but doesn't yet have a relationship with him. Just so it's clear, Nick will meet Jesus in this story, and Jesus will offer Nick a relationship. He'll offer him a friendship. But also, just so it's clear, Nick will not take Jesus up on his invitation during this story, at least as far as we know. I think there's more that happened in John chapter 3 than, than our eyes are able to see at first blush, but we can't really be sure that... It, well, we know that he didn't decide to follow Jesus after this, but you know, where his heart was, we can't tell. But I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to take John's advice and expect that once you've heard this story, you'll believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. And because you believe, I'll expect that you'll decide to accept Jesus' invitation to have a relationship with him, a friendship with him, so that you can have life through his name. By the way, I hope that you won't be offended that I've decided not to use Nicodemus' full name. But instead, I'll call him Nick because, well, it just seems friendlier and it's Christmas. By way of background, as this story unfolds, Jesus has already been performing miracles and, and doing amazing things that had everyone wondering who Jesus really was. Word had gotten around about the miracles that Jesus had performed, and a man named Nick became very curious about Jesus and wanted to meet him personally. Nick was a Pharisee, and one of the 70 men that made up the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were like the presidency, the Congress, the Supreme Court, and the Vatican, all rolled into one in Israel. In other words, Nick was an important political and religious figure in Israel and as such really couldn't be seen asking Jesus questions or even really associating with, with him. So Nick made the decision to pay Jesus a visit at night. Away from the prying eyes of his friends and associates and tradition tells us that this meeting happened on a rooftop. And with both that background and John's goal in mind, this is the story from God's Word, from the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Nick came to see Jesus one night away from prying eyes and likely met Jesus on a rooftop to keep the conversation private. Nick started the conversation by saying, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher that, who has come from God. We know this because no one, no one can do the amazing things that you've been doing. No one could do the miracles you've been performing if God wasn't with him. In response, Jesus got right to the heart of the matter, as Jesus always did, and said, I'm telling you the absolute truth, Nick. No one can even see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. This was a shocking statement to Nick because he'd never even heard of being born again. So he asked, how can someone be born when he's old? I mean, surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus then explained 
what he had meant by saying that a person must be born again. I'm telling you the absolute truth again, Jesus said. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and born of the Spirit. Jesus went on to say that flesh, give, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Nick, Jesus said, you shouldn't be surprised to hear me say that you must be born again. Jesus then explained why he said that. You know that the wind blows wherever it wants to, Jesus said, and, and you hear the sound it makes, but you don't know really where it comes from or even exactly where it's going. The same is true, Jesus said, of everyone who is born of the Spirit. And that's when Nick said, hold on, I'm still confused. How can this possibly be true? Jesus looked at Nick and said, you are the most prominent and important teacher in Israel, and, and so I have to say, I find it surprising that you don't understand these things. And that's when Jesus went on to identify the problem that Nick was having. Nick, Jesus said, I've been telling you about things that I know about the things that I have seen with my own eyes, but you still choose not to believe what I'm saying. So think about it, Jesus went on. If you don't believe me when I talk about earthly things like the wind, why would you ever believe me if I were to talk about heavenly things like being born again? You see, Nick, Jesus went on, no one's ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus referred to himself here by the, the name that he preferred. But Nick, I want you to think about when Moses set up that serpent on the pole there in the wilderness, and I need you to know that I, the Son of Man, will be lifted up in the very same way. And the Son of Man will be lifted up so that everyone who believes will have eternal life in him. And then Jesus said something that will echo down through all of eternity. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He sent him into the world to save the world. And that's the story from God's word. Now I want to take a few minutes to talk about the story. Nick was an educated man a very highly educated man who had heard about Jesus, and he was also a religious man, but he wasn't sure what he believed about Jesus, despite all of that. In other words, Nick, Nick's relationship with Jesus was entirely intellectual as this conversation begins and had nothing to do with his heart. So it occurred to Nick that the only way he could get the answers that he was looking for would be to meet Jesus face to face, and so he sets out with plans to do just that. He was obviously tired of hearing what other people had to say about Jesus and wanted to have a, a personal experience, a personal conversation with Jesus so that he could form his own opinion. Smart, this guy. So Nick sneaks, Nick sneaks out after dark so that his friends won't find out, and he asks for and gets a private audience with Jesus, probably on a rooftop. So Nick is with Jesus face to face. But Jesus is not going to be content with face to face. Jesus will begin to engage Nick mind to mind in the last part of their time together. They'll be discussing things heart to heart because, well, that's just how Jesus did things. In other words, Nick will ask questions on an intellectual level, mind to mind, but Jesus will give Nick heart to heart answers. 
And it makes me think of how many people I've met over the years who have an intellectual opinion about Jesus and are content with a mind-to-mind relationship with him. They're content about knowing him. They understand his place in history and, and the things that he did and how significant he was. But, well, that's about as far as they'll take it. But Jesus explained to Nick that it takes more than intellect to understand Jesus. It takes heart. And I'm wondering today if you have a heart-to-heart relationship with Jesus, or is he just someone that you understand intellectually, that great historic figure? So, Nick comes into the conversation with Jesus, having already formed some opinions about him, and now he wants to find out whether or not Jesus is the real deal. And remember, Nick's an important man in Jerusalem, the capital city, and he's one of the men who are in charge of political and and the political and religious life of the people in Israel. In other words, that night, the most important man in Israel sat down to have a conversation with the most important man in the world. Nick's a very learned man and a gifted teacher. But it's clear from the start of the conversation uh, with Jesus that, that he hasn't come to teach Jesus anything, though others of the Pharisees did come to teach Jesus. They came to him with that goal. Now, Nick, Nick has come to learn. And he doesn't have a lesson prepared, but he had prepared some questions that he wanted to ask Jesus. I say that he had questions prepared because I would have some questions prepared. <laughs> I expect that you would have some questions prepared if you wanted to get to the bottom of who this man is. Nick wants to understand Jesus better so that he could know what to do with Jesus, where to slot him. And I expect that you and I would have wanted the same thing. In fact, at the very beginning, as I mentioned then at the beginning, I'm assuming that you want to understand Jesus today so that you can know what to do with him personally. I'm assuming that, and I'm hoping that that's why you're here this morning. That's why you came to church. Nick is even ready with a great opening line. I love it. He says, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God because no one could do the amazing miracles that you've been doing if God wasn't with him. Makes perfect sense. It's obvious that Nick respects Jesus as a teacher, and it seems clear to me that, that Nick might be thinking that perhaps Jesus is more than just a teacher. Remarkably, though, if Nick did have some questions prepared, Jesus doesn't give him the time to ask them. Remember, Nick's making a mind-to-mind approach, but Jesus is about to go deep and talk to Nick heart-to-heart. Jesus looks at Nick, looks him right in the eye, and says simply, if you want to be part of God's kingdom, you must be born again. I'd like to stop here for a moment and ask you, How would you respond if Jesus just dropped that into the conversation right out of the gate? You must be born again. I'd fully expect that if Jesus were to say that to you, you probably wouldn't argue with Jesus. I hope you wouldn't argue with Jesus. But you probably wouldn't argue with Jesus, but you might say something profound like, yeah, I know. (laughs) It sounds like something I would have said at that moment. But that would be an entirely intellectual approach to what Jesus said that day. And I hope that you know by now that, that an intellectual approach to Jesus will never be enough. I'm asking you to think about what you would say if Jesus told you that you must be born again because Jesus was talking to Nick about being born again as though it was the central thing in life, the central truth in God's word. And I'm asking you this morning what you would say 
If, if Jesus said to you that you must be born again, because this morning Jesus is saying that to you. Nick is every man in this conversation. He's representing all of us as he hears these words from Jesus' heart. You must be born again. And at this point, we've got to give Nick some credit here because, as we've already said, he's a well-educated man, a guy that Jesus himself would refer to as the teacher in Israel. Think about this. Nick is a Pharisee. He's part of the Sanhedrin. He is the teacher in history, in, in Israel. And we know from history that those two things together meant, listen to me, that Nick would have had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized by the time he was 10 years old. As a 10-year-old, he could have quoted Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, stopping only for drinks, a drink and, I don't know, potty breaks. But he could have quoted it all as a 10-year-old. And then he would have had the rest, the rest of the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, memorized word for word by heart by the time he was 18 years old or so. In other words, Nick is a walking Bible. He's a walking Bible. He's a walking concordance. So I'll just go out on a limb here, and, and I'm going to guess that no one else here has the entire Bible memorized. Uh, feel free. I'll sit down. You can come up. I, I, I expect that none of us have the entire Bible memorized. So that means that when it comes to being religious, <laughs> Nick has us all beat. None of us can compete with Nick on this particular level. Now remember that Jesus has just told Nick that he needs to be born again. And Nick, who is a walking Bible, does a quick scan of the Old Testament in his mind. He's looking for those words born again. And it occurs to him as he goes back through all of those files that he's collected so carefully over the years, it occurs to him that the words born again don't appear anywhere in the Old Testament. Nowhere from Genesis to Malachi. In fact, the idea that you must be born again didn't exist until Jesus told Nick that he must be born again. The idea of being born again troubles Nick because he's a Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, he belongs to that great club of rule keepers who are willing to do anything they had to do in order to become part of God's kingdom. You see, Nick expects that it'll be difficult to get into God's kingdom, but, but as he processes, processes what Jesus has just said, Jesus is talking like it's, it's not only difficult, it's impossible. Because if, if you want to become part of God's kingdom, you must be born again. In other words, there's nothing that you can do to become part of God's kingdom or to gain eternal life. Instead, becoming part of God's kingdom is all about being a born again by believing in Jesus. Now, keep in mind, as we've been saying, Nick is a Pharisee, so he's fully expecting to discover something that he needs to do in order to be part of God's kingdom. And Jesus responded to that by steering the conversation completely away from Nick and pointed it directly back at himself. Jesus made it clear that being born again is not about something that Nick is going to do. It's about something that Jesus is going to do. And that means that being born again is not about something that you will do. Being born again is about something that Jesus has done. 
Nick is not going to make a, be able to make it possible for himself to be born again. Instead, Jesus is the one who will make it possible for Nick to be born again. And once again, the same thing applies to us. It's impossible for us to be born again or to have eternal life by something that we do. Only Jesus can make it possible for us to be born again or have eternal life. Remember, it's not about what you will do. It's about what Jesus has done. And to explain what he means by saying that, Jesus reminds Nick of, of a time when Israel was in the wilderness and openly rebelling against God. Because of their rebellion and disobedience, God had decided to punish the Israelites by sending venomous snakes, vipers, thousands and thousands of vipers into their camp. The snakes bit the people and the people began to die until God told Moses to make a statue of a, brazen, a, a brass snake up on, on a pole and, and then God told him to, hold, to hang that snake on that wooden post and put that wooden post up where everyone could see it. The idea behind the serpent on the post was simple. When everyone, whenever anyone was bitten by one of the poisonous snakes, they were sure to die unless they looked at that brass snake wrapped around that post. And if they did that, they would immediately be healed. That image of a snake on a pole is connected to healing in our minds and has become the symbol of the American Medical Association. We tie it to this particular moment. The people couldn't get well on their own, but God said, if you look at the snake on that pole, I will heal you. If you look, I will heal you. So let me ask you this. Was everyone healed? Well, we don't know the answer to that question. But here's what we do know. We know that everyone who believed God and looked at the snake on the pole was healed and survived the serpent's venom. We also know that anyone who did not believe what God said and did not look at the snake on the pole would die from the venom the snake injected into their body. So if they looked, God would heal them. And if they didn't look, God would not heal them. It was simple as that. In other words, the snake on the post didn't heal them. Don't be confused about that. It's not the snake on the post that heals them. God healed them because they believed what God said and they looked at the snake on the pole. And that means that looking at the brass snake was proof that they were trusting God to heal them. Looking at the brass snake was an act of faith and God healed them in response to their faith. In fact, when God told them about the serpent on the post, he explained to them that only those who looked at the serpent on the post would live. In other words, if you try to get well on your own, you will die. But all you have to do is look, and you will live. Then Jesus said that what happened to the serpent on the post was going to happen to him. Jesus is telling Nick that he is going to be lifted up so that we can have eternal life. So it's clear from what Jesus said to Nick that, that to have eternal life... Having eternal life is not something that we can do for ourselves. According to Jesus, I can only have eternal life by being born again. And being born again is not something that I can do for myself. Being born again is not something that I can do for myself any more than being born the first time was something that I did for myself. Being born is not something that we do for ourselves. It is always something that someone else does for us. Always. So let me sum this up. If you want to have eternal life, if I want to have eternal life, I must be born again. 
And if I want to be born again, that's not something that I can do for myself. And that means that if I'm going to be born again so that I can have eternal life, it will only be because of something that Jesus did for me. I know I keep saying that, but it's the, it's the central truth that we've missed in the church in the United States in the 21st century. If I'm going to have eternal life today, that won't be because of something that I do, but because of something that Jesus did. And when Jesus compares his being lifted up to the serpent on the post being lifted up, it's clear that if you and I are going to have eternal life, it will cost us nothing because it costs Jesus everything. It should be clear by now that Jesus is telling Nick that he, Jesus, is going to be crucified and he's going to die a brutal death. And, that I'm, and what I'm trying to say this morning is that life and eternal life are all about Jesus. They're blessings that we receive, but they have everything to do with Him. We are not defined this morning by our religion. We are defined by our relationship with Jesus. We say that so often, right, from this pulpit. In other words, the important question we're asking this morning is not what religion do you follow, but instead the question we're asking this morning is what kind of a relationship do you have with Jesus? Every one of us in this room was born dead. And by that I mean that every one of us was born separated from God. And today our only hope of eternal life in heaven comes from being reconnected to God. And that reconnection only happens by faith in Jesus. We were born disconnected from God. And the only way that we can have eternal life is by being connected to God again by being born again. And we can only be born again by believing that Jesus died for us and rose again from the dead. We were born dead, and the only hope we have today of heaven or being part of God's kingdom is if we are born again. Please understand this this morning. Jesus did not say that God so loved the world that he gave us his law so that anyone who keeps God's law will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus did not say that God give, get love so loved the world that he gave us the ability to try really hard so that anyone who tries really hard will have eternal life. Jesus did not say that God so loved the world that he gave us religion so that anyone who practices religion will have eternal life. Jesus did not say any of those things. Jesus said God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish will have everlasting life, eternal life. I want to remind you that our theme for this, this morning is, is the true gift. And the, in the spirit of our, the, that theme, I want to point out that Jesus did not say that God sent his only son. Jesus did not say that God commissioned his only son. Jesus said that God gave his only son. Jesus is God's true gift to us today. And today... God wants to give us forgiveness, give you forgiveness and eternal life, but those gifts are tied up in God's one true gift. You cannot have eternal life, the gift of eternal life, without having the gift of the Son. In fact, all of God's gifts are found in God's one true gift, His Son, Jesus Christ. And, 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 and how do you get that one true gift? Well, Jesus Himself said it. You must be born again. So i got to ask you this morning, have you been born again? Your religion won't save you any more than Nick's religion saved him. Keeping the law and doing good works won't save you. And once again, Nick is the proof of that. 
Because I could promise you, Nick was better at keeping the law than all of us here together combined will ever be. The only thing that will save you is being born again by believing in Jesus. Jesus died for you. He was buried and he rose from the dead on the third day. You and I are supposed to be punished for our sins, but Jesus was punished in our place. You and I are supposed to die because of our sin, but Jesus has died for us. And this morning, I'm begging you to stop trying to keep the law, to stop trying to be good enough to get into heaven. Instead, please accept God's true gift today because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that if you believe in him, you will have eternal life. But before we close this morning, I want to show you what being born again might look like. I want to show you a video clip from The Chosen, a video that depicts the story that I told you this morning. Now, The Chosen chose to add some things to many of the things that Jesus said and did, but as a storyteller, I can appreciate what they were trying to do. It takes about three minutes to read through John chapter 3, and I'm quite confident that the conversation that Jesus and Nick had that night was longer than three minutes. I'm quite confident they went other places as they wrestled over the truth. I can tell you that they added what they added for the sake of continuity. And as they added things, one of the things that I appreciate is that they, they did that to concord this story with other stories from God's Word. In other words, they don't have Jesus or Nicodemus say anything that they were unlikely to say. For example, Nicodemus is going to bring up the paralytic that Jesus healed in this conversation, and he'll mention someone named Lilith, who is now called Mary. It'll be an oblique reference for you, but Nicodemus is talking about a demon-possessed woman that he, Nicodemus, had tried to heal, but was unable to heal. And then later, he saw the same woman again. He ran into her, and she was entirely well in her, in her right mind, and he learned that Jesus was the one who had healed her. But setting that sort of thing aside... I know that we all love a controversy, but please, instead of being agitated by the controversy, let's let ourselves be moved by what Jesus taught and what Nicodemus learned that night. The video is just over nine minutes long, and I have a couple of clo closing comments, and then we'll be done. So uh, let's watch the video. Eastern slums. Hmm. Many wandering preachers have succeeded in gathering crowds with their rhetoric and fiery tone. I've heard a few of them over the years myself. So you know the type. Mm -hmm. But I have never heard anyone tell a paralytic to get up and walk, much less it actually happened. So what is your conclusion? I believe you are not acting alone. No one can do these signs you do without having God in him. Only someone who has come from God. And how is that belief going over in the synagogue? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why we are here at this hour. What else? What have you come here to show us? 
kingdom. That is what our rulers are worried about. No, not that kind. Then what? A sort of kingdom that a person cannot see unless he is born again. Born again? Yes. You mean like a new creature? A conversion from Gentile to Jewish? No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Then what is born again? I hope you don't mean return to the womb, because that would be a problem for me. My mother, may she rest in peace, is dead. Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That part of you, that is what must be reborn to new life. How can these things be? Ah, a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. Huh? I'm trying, Rabbi. I know. I know. Do you hear this? What? Listen. What do you hear? The wind. How do you know it's the wind? Because I can feel it. I hear its sound. Do you know where it comes from? No. Do you know where it's going? No. That's what it is to be born again of the Spirit. The Spirit may work in a way that is a mystery to you. And while you cannot see the Spirit, you can recognize His effect. mind is consumed with thoughts of what a stir these words would cause among the teachers of the law. Yes, and I do not expect otherwise. I speak of what I know and have seen, and it has not been received by the religious leaders. It is hard to receive. So if I have told you of earthly things, and you do not believe, how can I tell you heavenly things? I believe your words. I just fear you may not have a chance to speak many more of them before you are silenced. I have come to do more than speak words, Nicodemus. More miracles? Yes. But even more than that. Do you remember when the children of Israel complained against God and against Moses in the wilderness of Paran? Yes. They wanted to return to Egypt and they cursed the manna that God sent them. And then? They were bitten by serpents. And they were dying. But? But God made a way for them to be healed. Moses lifted the bronze serpent in the desert, and people only needed to look at it. So will the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Our people are not dying from snake bites. They're dying from taxation and oppression. I'm sorry to disappoint you. But I did not come to deliver the people from Rome. Then from what? From sin. From spiritual death. God loves the world in this way. That he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So this has nothing to do with Rome. It's all about 
sin. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, Nicodemus. He sent him to save it through him. It's as simple as Moses' serpent on the pole. Whoever believes in him will not be condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Have you ever heard anything like this before? When I met Lilith, Mary, that day, I told my wife and my students I said, she was beyond human aid. Only God could have healed her. And then I saw her healed. And here you are. The healer.
after Jesus is crucified, a large bag of spices will appear out of nowhere so that his body can be embalmed properly. We find out at that moment that it was Nicodemus who sent them. He was on a journey that began that night, that began before that night, as he tried to figure out Jesus intellectually. And then he met him heart to heart, and the change began. I'm wondering this Christmas, that same thing about you. Are you on an intellectual journey, an agreement journey, an ascent kind of a journey? Yeah, I can see it sort of makes sense. Or have you met him heart to heart and had the experience of the Spirit of God sweeping through your very soul? If you haven't, it's Christmas. What better time could there be than for you to experience the Lord Jesus as the one that God gave because he so loved you so that if you believe in him, you will not perish, but have eternal life. That is my Christmas wish for you. Will you stand in the presence? Father and our God, we bless your name today for your goodness. God, we get so caught up in this season, and I'm not rebuking anybody. Or I'm just asking, Father, that you would teach us in the early morning hours as the day approaches that to just be quiet in your presence, to meet you there, to let you speak to our hearts, to speak from our hearts to you, to commune with you and to fellowship with you and to enjoy life and forgiveness in the Son. Thank you, Father, for those words that Jesus spoke. For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son, so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. He sent His Son into the world to save the world. And this morning we thank you for that. Thank you, Father. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen and amen. We're going out those doors and... Maybe it's not appropriate to do ready break, but could I, could I just announce the play before you, you head out? Let's make this a season about Jesus. Let's give each other gifts and love on one another in ways that we never have before, deeply and profoundly, and then let's remember on that morning when we wake up, December 25th, that we're celebrating Almighty God wrapped in swaddling clothes. God bless you. Ready? Go get him, Potter's house.